Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Hey, you responded. That's good. We are alive and awake and alert and enthusiastic this morning. That is a good sign. My name is Paul Funches, and I am one of the pastors on staff at Faith Bible Church in Spokane, Washington. I am uh, the family pastor, which means I oversee all things 0 to 18, and I am privileged to know now your pastor, Chris Mullins. He has uh, been one of our guys there on staff, uh, kind of helping us with administrative tasks, and uh, I've been able to spend a lot of lunches with Chris, a lot of time with Chris and Ashley, and uh, he's been a wonderful encouragement to me and to my family. And I am just really thrilled that he's going to come and be able to be your pastor. That's really, really exciting. Uh, you're getting a wonderful couple in Chris and Ashley, a very humble and uh, Christ-loving, Christ-centered couple. And so we're just thrilled for that. And thrilled just how it happened. Thrilled how the Lord put all of that together. You don't see that very often. The candidating process is terrible. I don't understand it. I just, I don't know why we do the things the way we do them, but this, this is the way American churches kind of candidate people, but it just was wonderful for him to be able to come and get to know you, and then you're looking for a pastor, and all of a sudden it's like, what, what, what about Chris? He's here. He's, he's been feeding us faithfully, and uh, so just really cool to see how that worked out. I do have two of my kids with me, Gracie and Michaela, and uh, we have eight children. Uh, they, they were kind of told not to get up at 3.30. So I know it was, Jim painted it as this wonderful, like, look, look at how excited they were, you know, excited to go with dad. Uh, but they were kind of told not to get up and go with me this morning. And yet there they were, there they were on the couch at 3.30, uh, 4 o'clock. And I said, you know what? All right, you can go with me. Basically, going with dad means that they're going to get snacks. That's why, <laughs> that's why they wanted to go with dad. Because they know going with that on a trip means gas stations and snacks. And uh, so that's, that's their motivation. Anyway, it was good to have company this morning. Good to be with you uh, this morning. We're in a text that is so full and so uh, important this morning. It's, it's like if, if you ever taken a sponge, one of the big sponges, maybe that you use when you're cleaning uh, or for your projects at home, and you put it in a big bucket of water, and you pick up that sponge, you, you squeeze it there under the water, and, and it fills up with water, you know, and you pick it up out of the water, and it just is just, it's just gushing with water. You don't have to press the sponge at all. It just kind of gushes out, and if you squeeze it a little bit, water just comes flooding out of that sponge. That's the text we're in this morning. We don't have to press it very much to get all, you know, all this water gushing out on us. And so this morning, uh, we're not going to be able to squeeze it for all of its worth. It'll take years to do that. It would take years and years of meditation to get all out of what John 17 is trying to say. In fact, for eternity, we are going to be enjoying the realities of John 17. This morning, we're just going to squeeze it a little bit, and we're going to get water all over us. From God's Word this morning. We're excited about that, excited to be able to bring it to you this morning. And this is what we do up at Faith Bible Church in Spokane. And if you're uncomfortable with it, I understand if, if you want to sit there and not stand, I understand. But we always stand for the reading of God's Word. So if we'd stand this morning for God's Word, the reading of God's Word, John 17 is where we're at. John 17, verse 1 through 5. John 17, Verse 1 through 5. 
Hear the word of the Lord this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word that you have made so clear. It is so deep. It is unsearchable even how deep it is, and yet it is so simple. You have made it accessible to the youngest child, to the oldest saint in this room. You have made it accessible for all of us. And you have given it to us this morning to hear, to see, and to be transformed. We pray that you would be glorified in your word this morning. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, our hearts would be um, enlarged to see more of your greatness and glory, and that our hearts would treasure your son, Jesus, more today as a result of your word. And I pray that you would accomplish this work by your spirit in us, and that we would go away today rejoicing at your glory. We thank you for what you're doing in us. Even now we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There's three sections to the prayer that Jesus offers here in the midst of his disciples. He's praying in the midst of his disciples. It's at the end of what is called his farewell discourse. Fancy way of saying this, this is the last time he has all of his disciples together and he's talking to them. He's instructing them before he goes to the cross. And his high priestly prayer is the culmination of that discourse. There's three sections to his prayer. First, what we're looking at this morning, he prays for himself. Think about that for a second. Jesus, in the midst of his disciples, in, intending on them hearing what he's saying, he stops and he prays for himself in their midst. And then Jesus is going to pray for them, the disciples that are gathered around him. And then Jesus is going to close his prayer, praying for the church, those that are going to come as a result of the teaching of those apostles a glorious passage, one that all of you should know if you are wanting to know who your Savior is, 
wanting to understand the relationship that the Savior has to God the Father. It's one that you should all commit to study and to memory. We're going to look at the first five verses of this prayer, and really, what we're going to do, I'm just going to walk through the text, and we're going to revel in the truths of the text, and then I'm going to close with some implications from this text for us. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to counsel one another a little bit from this text, and uh, we're going to counsel our hearts from this text. Look again at John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, again, I'm, it's referring to the discourse, what he's instructing his disciples. And when he was done with that, then he lifted up his eyes to heaven, there in the midst of his disciples. And again, he, he's wanting his disciples to hear what he says. And not only that, he's wanting you to hear what he says. He wants you to know about this relationship he has with the Father. He wants you to know about the nature of their relationship. He, he wants you to be instructed this morning. He wants you to know him better. He wants you to know the Father better. He wants you to know the Trinity better. He wants you to know this intimate, mutual glorification relationship that they have together. He says these things for your benefit. So he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he says this, Father, the hour has come. What hour is Jesus talking about? Jesus is referring to a time that has been appointed for him. A time that he is fully aware of what it will involve. The hour has come. Look back real quick, and this will help. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Look at verse number 27. John 12, 27. This is right after Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Throughout the Gospels, he, he says continually, you know, this is not my time, the hour has not come. But here, after he enters into Jerusalem, he says his time has come, the hour has come. Look at verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is, is that what he should say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then look at verse 32, what he says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
So Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, he knows that his hour has arrived. The hour of what? The hour of his glorification. How will the Son be glorified? The Son of God will be glorified through death on a cross. The idea of glorified is this idea of lifting up to exalt so that all may see. We, we, we talk like that. Hey, lift that up so I can see it. Hold that up so I can see it better. That's the idea of glorified. He knows the hour of his glorification has come. And it includes his lifting up. He will be raised up on a cross so that all can look upon him and see. But what the world sees as shame and as humility, as humiliation, what the world looks at and scoffs at, what the world looks at and shakes their head at and mocks, that glorification, that exalting, we know is the most beautiful, glorious, that is the most wonderful moment of all of history. Because as the Son of God is glorified, as He is lifted up so that all can see, what is He doing? What is He demonstrating? He is demonstrating the perfect love of God. He is demonstrating the perfect justice of God. He is demonstrating God's perfect wisdom. As he is glorified, as he is lifted up, he glorifies the Father. He makes the Father known. What a wonderful truth. The hour that he has come to is the hour of his glorification, and it includes his death on a cross. It also includes his resurrection. I have interviewed a lot of teenagers for baptism, and part of, part of the baptism interview is the question about the gospel. Can you, can you explain to me the gospel? And in that process, I always ask, what did Jesus do so that you could be made right with God? What did Jesus do so that you could be right with God? And they always answer with a smile on their face, he died for my sins. That's what he did. And I say, right, absolutely right. What else did he do? And that smile, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. That smile goes, ah, and it kind of fades from their face. Um, I, what else did he do? Um, and they think I'm tricking them. They, that's what they think. Because from a little, little child, they've been told that Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. And they, they, they know that part, but it's the rest of it. And there is a lot more that he did. What else has Jesus done? 
and they struggle for a few moments. And then I say, well, did he stay dead? Oh, no, no, no. He rose again. But then I say, why? Why did he have to rise again? Could you answer that question this morning? Why did Jesus have to rise again? It's important. Because in his hour, the hour of glorification, he was exalted, he was raised up in death. Glorious meeting of grace and truth, of justice and mercy. Wonderful, beautiful display of God and glorifying of the Father. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead. If Jesus was to win the salvation of the people that God had given him, he had to defeat death. He had to rise again. If our sin, if my sin kills Jesus and he cannot rise again for my sin, then he cannot save me. This is very important. It's simple, but it's very important. Jesus died for my sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He defeated my sin. He conquered my sin. Do, do, you, see, do you see the raising theme? He was raised up. He was glorified, and then he was raised up, and he defeated death, and he defeated sin, and he was victorious, and then that's not it. What if I said, what else did Jesus do? He died for sin. He rose again to conquer sin, to conquer death. He defeated death. What else did he do? It's just us. Who wants to guess? What else did he do? <laughs> Everybody's like, I don't want to answer wrong. I don't want to give the wrong answer. But how, how did that happen? He ascended. That raised up theme, that's a hint, right? He was raised up in death. He was raised up in his resurrection. He was raised up in his ascension. And he, he raised up, he was, he was brought up to sit at the right hand of the Father, and we see in this text, to take part in that glory that was rightfully his, that he had, even from before the world began. That is our Savior. He was raised up, and in his death he demonstrated he demonstrated who God was. This is what John 1 says, right? We beheld his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was glorified, and by his glorification, he demonstrated who the Father was. By his resurrection, he demonstrated his power over sin and death and his authority, his rightful authority. Romans 1 says he was declared to be the son of God in power at his resurrection. And then he was raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father where he secures our place with God. 
He was glorified. It was the hour of his glorification. Now, think about this. He knows what his hour entails. He knows it's coming. He knows it's arrived. This gives me the idea that this was a planned, this is a planned thing. This is not God, the Father, trying to scramble and figure out what he's going to do about sin and about death. This was not a haphazard plan. This was a plan that was made, a, a plan made according to perfect wisdom in eternity past. God the Father planned this hour. Did you know that the point of all of history, before creation, the point of all of history was found in this hour that Jesus came to? Before creation, the plan was the glorification of the Son. And why? Why do we see here? Why, why would the Son be glorified? There's really only one prayer request here that Jesus makes. He, he makes one prayer request. He says, glorify your Son. And what is his motivation? That the Son may glorify you. The plan for all of time was that the Son would be glorified and that the Son would be glorified in this way. The point of all of history finds its definition in this hour that Jesus is talking about right here in his death, resurrection, and ascension that that is the pinnacle. It is the climax. It's, it's the point that all of history turns upon, which is really, really good news. You know, we talked about the gospel a second ago. What is the good news of the gospel? Where, where does the good news of the gospel begin? Have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard... And I used to, and listen, I used to be one of those evangelist guys that would travel around and preach in churches for a living. I used to do that for a living. Have you ever, you know, the tent revival things? Have you guys ever seen that? I used to actually do that for a living. And part of that, I've repented of that. I don't do that anymore. I pastor in a church. So, um, but part of that is going door to door. Has anybody ever gone door to door visitation? Do you remember those days, door to door visitation? I can't tell you how many houses, how many doors I've knocked. A lot of doors. And this is how I was trained. I, I was always trained, go in and give them the bad news and then bring in the good news and they won't be able to turn it down, right? Here's the bad news. God is holy and you're a sinner and you can't be with God. In fact, because of your sin, you deserve the wrath and justice of God. That's the bad news. Now, the good news is God loves you, and he doesn't want you to go to hell, which is what you deserve. So he gave his son to die for you in your place so that you could be saved. Don't you want to be saved? Don't you want to go to heaven? And the person at the door says, uh, yeah, of course I do. 
I don't want to go to hell. That's bad news. And they pray a prayer, and you take their name, and you go the next door. Can't tell you how many times I've done that, to my shame. But do you know where the good news of the gospel actually begins? Not really a trick question, but I want you to think of it. Where does the good news of the gospel begin? The good news of the gospel begins with this. The glory of God. That's the beginning of the gospel. The glory of God. What do we mean by the glory of God? We talked a little bit about glorification, but what do we mean by the glory of God? The glory of God is, is this revelation of who he is. Did you know the reason he created all things? He didn't create all things because he was bored. He didn't create all things because he just needed something to do and wanted a game to play. God didn't create all things just because he wanted relationship with people. Did you know God doesn't need relationship with people? God has a perfect relationship in himself. No, God created all things for one reason. Glory. Glory. He wants to demonstrate who he is. He wants to be glorified. He created all things, and in that creation, he placed on the top of a mountain a garden sanctuary called Eden. A garden sanctuary called Eden. And in that sanctuary, he placed his son king named Adam. And they were to serve Adam and Eve as rulers, having dominion, as priests working and keeping the garden. And they were to expand. They were to multiply and fill the earth with his image. So much going on in that passage that we won't, t we won't touch. But this, this is the goal. This was the, the mission. Adam and Eve were to multiply and fill the earth with his image to glorify him. The, the earth was meant to be a global temple. The whole earth was his temple. And in every place of the earth, he was to be glorified and worshiped as God. That was the point of all creation. That was why he created everything. It was for his glory, for his worship as God. And man was to enjoy that fellowship with God, unhindered, unbroken. They were to enjoy God. What is sin then? The good news of the gospel begins with the glory of God. What is sin? Sin is man seeking to rob God of his glory. It is not passive. It's, sin, sin is not just not giving God glory, although that is true. Sin is an active attempt to rob God of his glory. When Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden, what happened? What did mankind do? Mankind went and they sought to build their own temple. They sought to build their own mountain. They sought to build their own way to God. They wanted to be God themselves. 
They wanted to be glorious in themselves. Look at the glory of man. Look at what man can accomplish. I sat with my 12-year-old daughter on her birthday this last week. We were sitting in Panera, which is what she wanted. I would have never chosen Panera. She chose Panera. We were sitting in Panera, looking out the window, and in the distance, there was this mountain. It was Mount Spokane. By comparison, not a great mountain, but but a mountain. I mean, it, seriously, you look at Mount Rainier, or you look at some of these, and you're like, Mount Spokane's nothing. But it, 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 you can see it on the horizon past the city, and, and compared to the city, it's glorious. Here's a mountain off in the distance, snow-capped mountain off in the distance. And, and, and in our view, we can see the mountain in the distance, and there in our view, we can see a building about 12 stories tall, that looked to be about the same size as the mountain because the mountain was far away, away, you know. And I just asked my daughter, I said, look at those two things. One was made by God, one was made by man. They look to be compare, you know, com- comparable. They, they look to be similar. Which one's more glorious? She said, The mountain. It has beyond description because God made it. Look what man makes. In their best effort, we, we stand back and we look, oh, look how great man is. But in their best effort, they can't even hold a candle at all to what God has done. And we know this. Driving here this morning, I watched the sunrise. Why does, why does the sun rise? Oh, it gives us heat, and it gives us day, and it gives us light. But why does the sun rise? Because God wants to be glorified. The sun rises so that our hearts will go, God, we want to worship you. You are the only one worth worshiping. But we don't. In fact, we want to rob him of his glory. And in his place, we want to exalt ourselves, exalt ourselves and make much of us. This is what sin is. And because God is God, and because glory is the reason and purpose for all, God cannot let you rob his glory. And we wouldn't want him to We wouldn't want him to let us rob him of his glory. Would we? Would we want the God who made all things, the stars and the moon and the sun and the mountains, would we want that God to be brought down? No. I don't think anybody in your heart, you you would say that. We want him to be glorified. We want him to be seen for what he is great and glorious, and beautiful, and majestic. That's what we want. But sin robs him of that glory. And he will justly pour out his wrath, his glorious wrath, against those who rob him of his glory. But even before he made all things, he knew this. And God put forth a plan in his son. That's what we read right here. 
He put forth a plan. Let's look at it there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. There you see that mutual glorification. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now that word since, it's a little bit of a hard word to translate perfectly in the English. A better translation perhaps is the idea of just as. Just as. So there's a correspondence. Does it make sense? There's a correspondence between what he's just said uh, in verse 1 and now what he says in verse 2. So let me read it again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you just as you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. So Jesus, from before time began, the Father decided, the Father willed that his Son, before he made Adam, he had determined, he had decided that his son, Christ, Jesus, that he would be the authority over all flesh. And that decision that he had made in eternity past, that decision was about to come to fruition in this hour, the hour of the son's glorification. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, he was going to become the authority over all flesh. That's why he talks about it as past tense, and yet it's still future. Because it's something that had been decided in eternity past. God, concerned for his glory, put forth a perfect plan in his son to exalt his son and make his son the authority over all flesh. That authority, by the way, is the basis for our mission, when Jesus says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, go you therefore make disciples of all nations. Why? Why have we been given the authority and the commission to go make disciples of him from all nations? Because he is the ruler of all nations. He is the authority over all flesh. He is the one that by his father has been placed in that place of authority and power and honor. The Father's given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, let's, let's go back to the story again about the temple, about the fact that the earth is to be God's temple where his glory shines forth and mankind worships him. Sin robs him of that glory. He set forth his son. Why? For what purpose? To glorify him to reestablish his glory upon the face of the earth. And his people Israel, remember Israel, he gave them to be his testimony to the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, his own possession. He was to be their God. They were going to be his people. He was going to build his tabernacle in their midst and dwell in their midst. We see that that did not happened because of their unfaithfulness, their disobedience. But God's intention is and has always been to fill his earth with the glory. Habakkuk 2.14. The whole earth will be filled with what? The knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. So if Israel failed in that attempt, if Adam failed in that mission, if Israel fails in that mission, Jesus succeeds in glorifying 
God upon all the earth. He says, to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. So much could be said there about God's election and the atonement of Christ for whom he died. Who did Christ die for? But I want to look at what Jesus says, the next verse, verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When God sent forth his Son into the world, again, John 1, it says he was the light of the world. And what did the world, the world that was made by him, what did the world do to him? Rejected him. It did not want the light. It wanted darkness because their deeds were evil. They refused. Again, what is sin? Sin is robbing God of his glory. When he sends his son who is to glorify him into the earth, what do you think the people of the earth are going to do to him? They are going to kill him. They don't want God's glory upon the earth. They don't want God's glory to fill the earth. They don't want the knowledge of the glory of God. And here we see what a wonderful, glorious truth that God has accomplished. He has, he has worked on the behalf of people to cause them to know him. We could never know him on our own. We can never, we can never know him and give him glory the way we should. Our hearts are made to worship, but we do not want to worship the God who made us. We want to worship everything else. Even this morning, you're sitting there. What is it that you're worshiping here today? What is it that you worship? You worship something. Your life is built around the worship of something or someone. You were made to worship him and give him glory. This idea of glory, again, this idea of glory is Inextricably, inextricably connected with this idea of revelation being revealed, right? God has revealed himself. God has shown himself. God has revealed who he is. But that revelation, what does Romans 1 say? That revelation, we don't want it. And instead, we suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plainly seen in the things that he has made. But we suppress the truth, and instead of giving glory and thanks to God and acknowledging him as God and lifting him up as God, we turn and we give the worship to creation. We would rather worship the creation than the creator. So what? What are we going to do? Well, God has to accomplish in us something that's beyond our ability to cause us to take the scales off of our eyes to take the scales off of our heart and to cause us to see him and to know him. That's, it's glory. It's glory. See, this morning, because God has worked in my heart the work of salvation through his son, because he's glorified his son and caused me to see his son and value his son and, and count his son worthy, because God has done that in my life, I looked at the sunrise and I said, glory to God. My God made that, and I am his. He made me, 
And I could worship him. I just, want to, I just want to live my life to worship him. I just want to worship him with my life. That's, that's what it caused in my heart as I look at the sunrise. But the vast majority of the world looks at the sunrise. And instead of looking upward, they look down in shame. It, it, it brings up something in them that they know. They know there's a God and they know they should worship him, but they can't. It just brings misery and despair and contempt. And they turn from the sunrise or from the mountain. They turn to the things they've made with their own hands and they give more worship there. I'm not picking on people, but as I'm watching the sunrise... I pass by and there's men sitting out in fishing boats along the river, fishing. There's nothing wrong with fishing. I don't like it, but if you like it, that's fine. <laughs> but I, I, I wouldn't want to be fishing this morning. I would rather be with you. Why? Because I've experienced... God's work in my life to cause me to see and to know and to want to live my life for his glory. And not just that, it's not something he's just done with me, he's done that to a people, a people, a, a definable group of people that you represent this morning. See, he's done that for you as well. He's opened your eyes and caused you to see and caused you to respond and worship. He's gathered you together. That's what you do on a Sunday morning. I appreciate it so much what Jim said. We got to gather people. We got to be together. Why? Because that's what the church is. The church is the people of God gathered. And by your gathering, you testify to the glory of God. The glory of his son the truth of who they are. You, you are Trinitarian this morning. You are, you are demonstrating the glory of the Trinitarian truths, the truth of who the Father and Son are and the work of the Spirit in your life. What a wonderful opportunity you have every Sunday morning. You were singing praises. Now, I don't know how many of you meant the praises that you were singing earlier, but... You, you were sitting here singing praises. Do you realize that you, you didn't put yourself there? God did that. He created in you a love for him, an awareness and a knowledge and acknowledgement and a desire to worship him. This is what Christ has done in his hour of glorification. And then we see, I've got to hurry here. Let's just, let's just go back, go, go down to verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, you see, the Father has given him a work to accomplish, and he's accomplished that work. That, again, that past tense versus future work. He's, he's talking about it as it's already accomplished, because it is having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, he returns to the petition, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was exalted on the cross, shameful, humiliating, and yet glorious. 
and that work on the cross, Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Very quickly, implications. And we, we have just scratched the surface. I, I, I appreciate your patience in me as I just get excited about a passage. But we want to, we want to think a little bit now upon these truths and the implications for our life. Let, let's counsel here together a little bit. Do you know all of us need counseling? Do you know that? We all need counseling. Daily, we need counseling. Counseling kind of has this, that, that word kind of has a stigma to it. It shouldn't. We all need counseling. And do you know who your best counselor is? You, you know who your best counselor should be? Yourself. You should be able to talk truths to yourself and counsel yourself daily. So we need some counseling today. Given this passage and the truths of this passage, there are some implications for us. And actually, I would challenge you to spend this week coming up with more implications. I just have three or four. Could you spend this week maybe coming up with some more implications from the truths that you've heard from this passage this morning, the mutual glorification of Father and Son, and the purpose and the plan set forth by the Father in the Son to make for himself a people for his glory. What, what are the implications of this? Well, first, this is important. The work of Christ in redemption is about God's glory. That's why he came to die. It's about the glory of the Father. Now, someone might say, well, yeah, but how about his love? Right. What, is it, what does it mean that Christ came because God loves us? Remember Romans 5? He demonstrates his love in Christ. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love. Why did Christ come? To glorify the Father. To glorify his love. To glorify his mercy and his justice. To glorify his grace. Exodus 33 and 34. I know I've, I've thrown out a lot of scripture references. I hope that's okay. Exodus 33 and 34. You remember that story, Exodus 33 and 34, Moses standing on Mount Sinai, and he wants to see what? He wants to see the goodness of God. He wants to see the glory of God, and God passes before him and speaks to him, and what does he say? This is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. What does he say? That he is a God of steadfast love, slow to anger, full of mercy. And yet he will not forgive the sinful, those with iniquity. He will hold their iniquity against them. And you hear it right there, you have it. The, the, the glory of God, the, the, the definition of who God is, all of his attributes in, in complete harmony, all at once. 
See, when we talk about the glory of God, we like to talk about his attributes. God is love, and God is mercy, and God is just, and God is all these things. And we talk about, you know, A to Z. We could, we could come up with an alphabetical list, A to Z, of all the attributes of God. The thing is that God is not any of those things by themselves. God is all of that, all at once, all at the same time in perfect harmony. Get your mind around that. Moses saw the remnants of God passing before him and his face shone and he had to put a veil on. 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 says that we have seen something far more glorious than what Moses received on a mountain. What he received was connected to the old covenant. What we have received is the new covenant and it will not fade away. We have beheld the glory of God in his gospel, we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, so why did Jesus come to work the works that his father gave him? Why did Jesus come to work the works of redemption for God's glory? Now, this is important because it doesn't sound nice, but you need to hear this. Your salvation is not about you. It's not about you. In fact, life is not about you. Have you ever heard the term navel gazer? Have you ever heard that term? Somebody who just kind of stares down at their navel? Now, I'm guilty of this, as are you. It isn't so much of our life just spent staring down at ourselves. Where does my comfort come from? Where does my security come from? Where, where does my meaning come from? Where does my purpose come from? Where does my enjoyment and my joy come from? So many marriages I've sat with and counseled. And I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but when it comes down to it, here's what it is. The man wants something from his wife that his wife was never meant to give him. And the wife wants something from the husband that the husband was never meant to give them. And they keep looking down at themselves like, well, when's he going to give me what I want, what I need? When's she going to give me the things that I need, what I want? And, and, and it's my joy to be able to take those people and say, okay, now let's look up at something far more glorious. Let's look at Jesus and what you've been given in Christ. And when I see Jesus and when I see what he's done and when I see what he's given me, I don't need anything from anybody else. I have everything I need in Christ. And it is great comfort to realize that salvation is not about me. It is far greater than that. In fact, my security and salvation comes from the faithfulness and the commitment the Father has made to the Son. And the Son has made to the Father. It is, it is unbreakable because it's between the Father and the Son. My, my, my salvation is secure because it's been accomplished between them. Glory to God. And when I gaze upon the gospel, when I gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I realize I actually don't need anything from my wife. My mission is to give everything to my wife. My mission is to serve her and love her. My mission is to glorify Jesus. That's what my mission is. And you know what? I don't need her to do anything in order for me to do that. If my wife sins against me, I can still glorify Jesus. 
If my husband, right, ladies, if your husband sins against you, you can still glorify Jesus. In the church, what does it mean for us in the church? We are the people of God. We are God's testimony here on earth. We talked about temple a minute ago. That's what the church is. The church is the living temple on earth where God's glory resides and God's glory is seen and Christ is made much of. That's the mission of the church. What does the world need? The world needs to see the people of God being separated from the world in how we live and what we care about, what makes us angsty, what gives us joy, what gives us purpose. He is glorified in his people. And you have such, such a blessed, such a privileged position as his church. Skipping down to the end, I want to draw your attention again to the reality that Christ here prays for himself. Christ here in this passage prays for himself. This is the, the last implication I'll, I'll give you just for sake of time. Christ prays, prays a prayer here for himself, and he prays a prayer that you and I really can't pray. Do you see that? This prayer he prays for himself. I can't pray the same exact prayer that Jesus prays. However, However, it does have implication for us in how we pray. Jesus prays in full confidence of what the Father is going to do. He knows God's sovereign plan, and yet he prays for it. He also prays to be glorified in this hour that has come upon him, knowing that that glorification will require his suffering. He must suffer if he's going to be raised from the dead. He must suffer if he's going to be raised up to the right hand of the Father. He must suffer. And so in that, I do think it has implication for us as we pray for ourselves. What do you pray for yourself? How do you pray for yourself? What do you pray for? Now there's a lot of things to pray for that would be good things to pray for. But I want you to take some time and think about that. What do you pray for yourself? I was sitting with a man a few weeks ago who is experiencing a level of suffering. He has several children. His youngest is experiencing some severe health issues. Uh, his youngest is only 18 months or so and experiencing significant health issues. And health issues, you know this, if, if your child is experiencing health issues, that affects the entire family. Uh, mom and dad are exhausted. Kids, their lives have, have got to be around this, this child who needs a lot of attention. And they've been in this season for a long time for the entirety of, of their son's life, 18 months. He sat down with me at lunch a couple weeks ago, and within a moment I said, you know, you know that question, hey man, how you doing? I hate that question. I mean, what, what are you supposed to say to that question? But I, I asked it anyway. He said, how you doing? And he just, 
broke. He just broke down sobbing. Now, this is a guy who's like, he's a tough guy. He throws axes and stuff, and he has a long beard, and he doesn't like to cry. And he broke down. He broke down because he's tired, and he, he doesn't know when this is going to end, and it, it might not end, not for a while. So I sat there, and I listened to him, and I, I tried to comfort him, and I, I said, what are you praying for through this? I said, you know, it's, it's okay to pray that it would leave you. That's okay to pray that. Jesus prayed that. If there would be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then Jesus said, not my will, your will, Father. So what are you praying through this? He said, I, I, don't, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. And as we sat there and talked for a while longer, again, it was my joy to help him realize that though we would never ask for the suffering, God is glorifying himself. I started just asking him, who, who do you think is watching you right now? My kids are watching me. That's right, your kids are watching you. Your kids are watching whether your love for Jesus is real or not. And through this suffering, you're going to demonstrate that it is. And God's going to use that to draw your kids to him. Through this suffering, your coworkers, they know what you're going through. And they think that your love for Jesus is just a facade and you're going to show them it's not. And it's going to require suffering. And God's going to use that and draw people to himself. Again, like Jesus, lift it up to draw men to himself. God's course for you, dear Christian, is a course of suffering. There is no happy life the way the world defines happiness. There is no easy life. The Christian life is not an easy one. It is a road of suffering and hardship, but it's a, it's a road of purpose. It's a road of glory. It's a ro road that is glorious because everything in our life has immense purpose and value to make God known, to glorify his son. Can you pray that in whatever it is that you're going through in life? Can you pray that, God, Christ, Glorify yourself in me. I want people to see you, your love, your mercy, your patience, your truth. I want people to see you through me. Do you understand what value, what privilege you have in God's work to glorify himself through the Son? You're his people, and he is glorifying himself through you. Sickness and death and hurt and betrayal and difficulty, all of these things he's using to glorify himself. His glorification is a model for us. If we are to glorify him, we must be humbled. Because it's not going to be about us. It's going to be about him. Lord, raise us up, even through suffering, that the world could see you. That's the prayer of a Christian the hard prayer of a Christian. I've taken too much time. We have 
an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together, which again is glorious, the fact that we can share in this meal together. So let me pray and let Jim come and administer that supper for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. Again, this is all about you. It's all about your glory. It's all about making much of you. We, we want to see the earth filled with the knowledge of your glory. Convict us, even now, convict us by your spirit in our lives where we have, we have hesitated, we have refused to give you your due place. We've made our lives about us, about our comfort and about our security and about our happiness and all these things that we're so afraid of losing. Help us to realize that you alone are the prize. You alone are eternal life. There is no life in all of these things that we hold so dearly to. I pray that you would make us a people, a pure, holy people, love, loving your word and loving your truth for your sake, for your glory. I pray for those, Lord, here today who do not know you. They don't know you. They don't have eternal life. I pray that you, by your grace, would give them the gift of repentance from their sin, the gift of faith to see and believe, to receive the truth of who you are instead of suppressing it. Lord, they know it's true. I pray that you'd give them the gift of repentance and faith to believe it. Lord, we thank you and honor you and glorify you in all the rest of our day and what we do and say as we sit at bread together here in a while. I pray that you would fill our mouths with edifying words, encouraging words. Fill our mouths with your, your glory. And we thank you for what you will accomplish. For your sake we pray. Amen.